Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin. This week, we are it's all Tour Flanders. We are talking the, I think this is the best race on the calendar. This is my favorite day of the race of the year. It's on this coming Sunday, the Ronde von Vlaanderen, as, as you would actually say if you were in Belgium. It's an extremely difficult race. It has cobblestones, um, just grueling, grueling, sharp, short climbs. Um, it's a long race, 250 kilometers. I think it has a bit of everything. And just Belgium is just a beautiful country. It really sparkles during this race. And maybe you wouldn't really think about going on vacation there. But if you watch this, you'll be booking a cycling trip there right away. We have a great, great, great start list. We might not have a full strength Wout van Aert, though, unfortunately. But uh, kind of to make up for it, the, the makeup gift is here. We get the Tour de France, two time Tour de France champion, Tadej Pogacar versus. Matthew Vanderpool, who's kind of emerged out of nowhere to be, he's, he's the, the odds on favorites, not even close. Pogacar's number two. Um, I, I take issue with that. And, and I'm going to talk with Andrew Vance from the Choose the Harwood podcast about the race. He's a passionate, passionate cycling fan, big Tour of Flanders fan as well. So we will get into that in a second. And then we'll have Oliver Nason on, who is doing the race for Auger Duer, the French team. And we will get into that right away. So let's do that now. Andrew and I recorded this right before we found out Wout Van Aert has COVID and would not be writing at the Tour of Flanders. So the a majority of the beginning of our conversation is now irrelevant. Please disregard. Well, I see that Yumbo Visma still has Wout on the start list, so they haven't scratched him yet. What do you think? Is he going to show? I think he's going to show. I think he's going to suck. I'm like, really, this is like devastating. This is devastating to me. I don't, I, I'm like, I care too much about Wout. Like I, I feel like he's amazing. Like think how much better he is than Remco Evenepoel. He's won, he won a mountain stage, a time trial, and a sprint stage at the Tour de France last year. And people act like, yeah, he's okay. Like it's like no, that's insane. That's like Eddie Merckx type stuff. Like Remco Evenepoel has won three World Tour races his whole career. And then I was like, well, this is like Wout looked great at. Omloop and E3, and it's like, oh, this is his Cancellar year. He's going to win Flanders. He's going to beat Vanderpool. And then now, I just don't. I was talking to Oliver Nason earlier, peek behind the curtain. He's going to be on after this. But he was saying, once you get sick this time of year for these classics, like you, you can't recover. Like you're done pretty much. So I, I'm not, I'm really, really bummed about it. But is, is there a chance this is a smokescreen coming from Yumbo Visma? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a thought that I had. Is this a bit of the old rope-a-dope? Is this a bit of psychological brinksmanship? And, or is this reality? I mean, it would be kind of crazy if it was not real, just to fabricate an illness. But it would solve some of the problems where, wow, it was coming into this race so, so hot that you could, you could, like, I could visualize him getting marked out of the race. You know, like we've seen this so many times where, the, the hot guy of the spring, like Cancellar or Sagan, just gets marked out of Flanders and Roubaix. Would this really change anything? I mean, it's like all of these mind games are funny. You're like, so, okay, he says he's sick. He attacks. Do they really not follow him? Like, I don't really know how much, it, what problem it really solves for them, but I'm holding out hope that it is some type of gamesmanship. Yeah, that would be great because I agree with you, Spencer. I would love to see a full strength Wout go head to head with MVDP and everyone else in the race, but in particular, Tade. Yeah. And we'll, we'll talk about him in his, I've got some thoughts about Tade, but if I have some, I have some thoughts. As Vanderpool well. is kind of safe. This would be incredibly disappointing if Wout was sick or missed and or missed the race and Vanderpool wasn't present. Like, talk about a wet blanket of a race when the two two best cobbled riders in the world aren't there so the fact that he looks so good is is really interesting but also not i don't know if you watch dwarves on wednesday but he's not riding like he normally rides he's really conservative he lets other people pull moves back for him like he he was kind of like riding tempo hard tempo at 100k to go maybe just to get in shape but he really waited at the end. He had like one attack to win the race. I've never seen him really ride like that. So it could just be that he's not as fit as he normally is or feels like he's not as fit because he's had such a weird disrupted spring. But that should give people concern that he's now riding smart. Like 
this this could get ugly if Vanderpool starts riding like an actual bike racer. <laughs> yeah, I know. And historically, though, that has been the big critique is that he's wasting too much energy at all of the wrong moments of the race and riding with his heart, not with his head, or at least that what it what it has seemed like at times. And I think that his biggest opponent at Flanders is going to be himself. That's my personal feeling is that the thing that could take MVDP off of the top step of the podium is just his gameness, his desire to be on the attack and his propensity at times to burn matches when he probably should not. Yeah, I do have questions about if you look at the races he's been doing well in, obviously San Ramo's really long, but he that was he was sitting in the wheels a lot there. Um he won a stage of Kopi Bartoli, I believe that's what the race was last week, and then Dwarves. Those are all pretty short. Those two races are really short. Like how fit right. is he gonna be two hundred and forty K in when they have to go up the Paderberg and the Oquermont at the end? Like I that's the only question mark for me. Like, are we seeing a bit of smoke and mirrors from him as far as fitness where he's not, if he wins, I think he'd be, I have like a list here. I think he would be the first rider in like as far back as I was recording to just like skip E3, get Wevelgem and then win Flanders. I don't know if that's happened like in modern history. So he, he could do it. He's so talented, but I do have a, sounds crazy because he looks so good but i have like questions about his fitness right now that's fair what do you think about from a team point of view and this is of course a leading question and i realize that wow is not going to you know probably is not going to be in the race but i think one of the market differences in 2022 versus 2021 is very obviously we've seen yumbo visma riding at a team level in the classics in a way that we didn't see them riding together in 2021. So Wout has had a level of team support that I think has taken his ability to produce to an even higher level, which is kind of frightening. And when I'm taking a look at Vanderpool's team roster, curious what you think. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, Yumbo went from, that was the big problem i mean wild had a few problems it felt like he was doing too much last year like if it's crazy he finished a minute behind tade pagachar at torino which which was like three minutes faster than the next closest person in the middle of his spring classics campaign that's ill-advised like you shouldn't do that and then he's entering flanders and roubaix way too tired so but outside of that his team stunk like they were just straight up bad in the past years in one day classics they added Tej Benut and Christophe Laporte in the offseason it's crazy to me that those two guys that like the other teams let them do that cuz they're incredible like they went from a mediocre one day team to an amazing one day team i still think Laporte or Benut could potentially win the race like they're that good um they're better than Alpes and Phoenix, but I wouldn't sleep on Vanderpool's team. Like in a, at a specific race like this, like if you see them in real life, they're like rugby players. Like they're big dudes. Like this is kind of what they are built for. So I right. think in, in a in a cobbled race, they can like put together a decent performance or at least decent enough to deliver him the win. But he won't. He probably will not have a second option with him in the finale. In the finale, and that's kind of the key. Like if if Van Art was there with Laporte and they get over the climbs together, that's really, really potent. I don't I don't think Vanderpool will have anybody with them in the final 30 or 40 kilometers, which will make it tough. Outside of the kind of obvious favorites here, who else do you think we might see pop? And maybe that's not the right <laughs> word to use within the context of uh, professional cycling. When I think of the word pop, I think of someone popping positive for a doping test. Um, but who do you think might be a surprise that we're going to see in the mix? So so before this happened with Van Aert, I'm looking at the betting odds right now. Uh, Vanderpool is yeah. actually decent, decently priced. He's at plus 175 right now, which for like a one-day race is insane because we all know the feeling of like turning on Flanders at six in the morning and like three favorites have already crashed out or flatted. And you're like, what the, what the hell happened while I was asleep? So, uh, even though Vanderpool's good, I, I don't like that those odds. 
The second highest rated favorite, this is an insane, pardon my French, is Tade Pogacar, who's never done this race before, is about 20, kilometer, 20 kilograms too light. He's at plus 450. He's ahead of Casper Askren, who won this race last year at, at plus 500. I mean, I, I talked to Oliver Nason about this, who said, don't say Pogacar can't do something because he probably can do anything he wants. That seems a little high. I do think he could be a factor. I have a hard time seeing him winning it. Casper Askren, the defending champion, his team sucks now. Quickstep has not been good at all this spring. I still think he could be pretty good. I have a hard time imagining he won't figure at the end of, at the end of the race. Laporte, as I said earlier, is very good. Um, and I'm surprised. One rider I'm surprised is so lowly rated is Matej Modric. Like, obviously, he won San Remo. He's looked good in every cobbled classic so far. So that's someone I'd really keep an eye on. How about you, Andrew? What do you think? I, you know, I think your read on just quick step generally is spot on equally. I just feel like this is their terrain. This is when they shine and they can pull out really surprising rides or they can put together that right combination of support riders to be in the finale and, and to win against the very, very best in the world. I mean, we saw it last year. I don't know about you, but I was surprised by that result. I don't know if I you was were. shocked. I mean, I was watching him ride to the line with Vanderpool thinking, what are they doing? He's just riding for second place. That's crazy. And then he beats him in the sprint, which right. I, I was pretty surprised by. But I guess their secret weapon is getting... It's always been team strength. You get three or four options when everyone else has one option, and like that's a huge advantage. I don't really see them being able to do that this year. But Casper Askren, I think he's one of the most underrated riders in the peloton. Like the guy's really good. Apparently, he was sick earlier this year. He's looked like he's building that fitness back. Um, I don't know. I'd almost say he's in. A key thing here is not being the like the top top favorite. Like if you're not Van Art, not Vanderpool, you can fly under the radar a little bit. So even with this team a little bit weak, I, I wouldn't be shocked if he wins again, even though I was shocked when he won the first time. You know, I think an interesting idea to explore here, because I think this has come up a lot in commentary during the past week as people are doing what we're doing and reflecting on who might win if Flanders, specifically this idea of whether or not institutional knowledge within the organization, within the riders and an organization of the course of the, of the dynamics of the race matter, or if in the modern era with super riders like Tade, who, you know, is kind of dropping into a context, whereas, as you noted, he's a bit light, uh, like, just from a size point of view, he just doesn't stick to the stones as well as, as slightly more muscular riders. And I mean, we could even talk about that if you wanted to, that might not necessarily make sense to people, but this isn't just a power to weight ratio drag race. And the course is tricky. And historically people who know the course better do, you know, combined with having exceptional physiology and top form on the day, can excel and they can leverage that knowledge within the team, within the coaching staff, the day of the race to make moves, to be in the right places at the right time. And I think that is a question mark, whether does Tade need that or not? Is that a, an antiquated notion with, you know, all of the different tools that athletes have at their disposal now to do recon of the course virtually ahead of time or do some of these old school rubrics still have a lot of power? It definitely helps to have knowledge. Um, I've been talking to people about that this week. I mean, we even, I mean, it helps to have knowledge. I guess it's not necessary. I always thought it was necessary, but then we saw Sonny Cabrelli win Perry Roubaix in his first ever time. So I guess it's not necessary. Um, but if you watched Wednesday, yeah, if you have no life like I do and you're watching a midweek classic on Wednesday, um, Tade Pogacar was too far back. He was like 40 riders back with 77k to go. They go into a corner. There's a crash. He doesn't go down, but he gets held up by it. And then he missed. There's a climb like three kilometers later, and he misses Vanderpool's move because he's too far back, having been caught up by the crash. That's the key way to lose Flanders. Like 
you really have to be attentive and at the front all the time. So seeing that made me think like, is this guy really going to be dialed? You have to be mentally dialed in for like six and a half hours. Like that's not the type of racing he normally does. Even when he's winning his one day classics, like Lombardia and Liege, like those are so hard physically and like so climb oriented that it's not the same positioning battle as it is at Flanders. So I I mean, in theory, you probably don't need course knowledge, but I still believe that it it does play a part. Like just ha- just knowing where the key pinch points are is is like not just knowing it in your mind, but like knowing it in your soul and your body that like where things are com- going to come up probably matter even more. I would say even more than Roubaix, and like I would encourage people not to be thrown off by like Sonny Cabrelli's showing up and winning this race. It's like Roubaix matters, like, but it's kind of a simple race. Like, don't flat, stay at the front, go fast, win the sprint in the velodrome. Flanders is a much more nuanced race, in my opinion. Spencer, did you happen to see Wiggins's commentary this week about Tade being in this race? Um, I saw the headline. I, I did not read the piece. Did, did you? Do you have anything to add on that? Yeah, Spencer, I went deep in the piece, and <laughs> I, I think. Uh, Something that Wiggins said, and I, I think it's worth bringing up in this context. So, you know, Wiggins said that he started his career targeting the classics. He then trans, well, first he was a track rider, then he was classics oriented, then he made some changes to his body composition and weight, then he targeted grand tours. Then at the end of his career, he went back to classics again. The comment that he made was that for classics such as Flanders, He said the mental, as you noted, just the level of focus that is necessary to be on point for the entire six plus hours of a race like this and the physical toll that it takes on your body, he compared to actually to doing a grand tour. He said it's actually that intense and the level of risk is so extraordinarily high. And I definitely want to talk about the ground in a moment. There's some things I want to talk about related to the ground itself, but one false move, and that could be the end of Tade's tour campaign and the things that are truly important. One would think to him, his future, his legacy. On the other hand, as we've seen with Wout, as we've seen with MVDP and part of what's so incredibly exciting about, and Pidcock as well, I would say part of what's so incredibly exciting about this current generation of stars and what feels really different to me in the 30 plus years that I've been following the sport is they do things that at times seemingly make no sense, whether it's, you know, Pidcock doing mountain biking, cyclocross, road racing, and, you know, and not just road racing, but classics, grand tours. It just, riders were not doing this 10 years ago. They simply weren't. You had to be so highly specialized. Now we see people going all in on things that seemingly just don't make sense. So to to bring it back to Tade, I think a question that I would have is from a psychological point of view, the level of risk he might have to take. I mean, we know that he can, if he brings his focus to bear on anything, he can achieve it. He's a generational talent, maybe the best ever. Equally, there is a level of risk inherent in Flanders, and it could cost him his entire season. And having that in the back of your mind, is that something that might detract him from taking some of the risks that are necessary to win the race? Or do I just have the limited thinking of a non-champion when when I'm projecting here? (laughs) I definitely think that's like not just non-champions. I think it's people... I guess we're slightly different ages, but people like our ages, Bradley Wiggins age, I feel like we're more cautious um, when it comes to cycling than the younger people are. Like, it doesn't seem like they ever care. Like I, I, you never really see Tade Pogacar be like, yeah, I was holding back because I'm worried about the Tour de France. Like I'm not even convinced he knows about the Tour de France. Like, does he know that he's racing it this year? Like I, he, I don't even think he's mentioned it once. Whereas like Lance would talk about it incessantly. You know, the whole season was about the tour. I, I, but I will say if you watch that final descent at San Remo, he definitely backed off uh, Modric's wheel. I don't know if 
that was just like, yeah, he's going too fast. I, I can't go that fast physically. Or if like, this is insane, like uh, he's going to crash and I can't crash. It was probably just like him thinking, just knowing his limits and not following. But yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. I just feel like they don't care. It's like specifically champions, but even the younger champions now are, you know, Wiggins was a one-time tour winner. He was a very good rider, like very good. I think he could like get it on time trial right now and like finish mid-pack. The guy is incredible. I don't know if he ever really achieved everything he could have because he thinks like we do. You know, it's like there's like normal thinking and there's non-normal thinking. And a lot of these guys are like not normal. They're like F1 drivers. They're like, you know, you, you could be decapitated if you go into the wall. They're like, nah, I'm not that worried about it. So, yeah, no, I think that that's actually a great comparison uh, to analogize to other sports. If you look at the current generation of um, F1 drivers, or if you look at MotoGP, yeah, like the, the youngest people are coming into the sport or they're not coming into the sport, but when they're getting to that very highest level of F1, of MotoGP, incredibly young athletes are taking insane risks, like at a level that more senior people in the sport are uncomfortable watching, but they have great admiration because they're like, yeah, these people are operating at another level because they don't have that fear. And perhaps because they haven't suffered the consequences of what happens when a risk goes wrong. And I mean, I think that's going to be part of what will be really interesting when Egon Bernal comes back into the sport. And I mean, I think we've seen this with Froome. With Froome, there's the question of just from a training and physiology point of view at his age, can, can he actually come back or is from, you know, now having experienced what he experienced, like there's no way that you're like back on a bike. I wouldn't think with the same level of, uh, you know, lack of fear that one needs to have to operate in these environments and achieve at the highest level. Yeah, we, I mean, we can talk about this more in depth later this spring. I have like a lot of thoughts about Froome and how this sport has changed. I do, I do wonder if being from like Slovenia, like you see this with Vanderpool, he seems to not know what races are important and what are not. Like if you remember last year, I think it was last year, the day before Liège, he did a 50K breakaway at the, I think it was, maybe it was two years ago at the Bink Bank Tour, which is not a race anyone cares about. And then he could have won Liège, but he was tired from the, solo breakaway the day before a normal person would be like well this race is pointless tomorrow's race is important i don't think he cares or knows what races matter and i wonder if pagacha being from slovenia and like kind of outside they're kind of doing their own thing over there i don't know if like he has the reverence for the tour de france that we do or bradley wiggins would being from britain like i think to him he's like tour flanders is a big race it's got tour in the name tour de france that's also a big race like I don't know if he has the same reverence for it. And I wonder if that's why he's so good at it. He's not like Richie Port. I can feel Richie Port's anxiety when I'm watching races. Like you can, you can sense he feels like how momentous things are. Or I even remember Taylor Finney was like in, a, in the lead group at Roubaix. And he said he was like thinking about how big of a deal it was that he was in the lead group. I'm like, ooh, man, like if you're thinking that you've already lost the race because Pogacar is not thinking that I can guarantee it. He's just like, I'm going to win this. You know, it's like, is this a group ride outside of Ljubljana or is this the tour of Flanders? Like it's all the same to him. So it's an interesting question. And we'll talk more about Froome later this spring. We got to We got to dig into that. Um, before you have to go, I'd love to let you circle back on the ground on the surface that you want to talk about. Yeah. I wanted to talk about the ground for a moment. So, uh, one of my favorite practitioners of jujitsu is this guy, Andrew Wiltsey. Um, and he is sponsored by Panda Express. He is the, the only Brazilian jujitsu practitioner, I believe sponsored by Panda Express, but very high level practitioner. And he had a great vlog a couple of months ago about street fights and people's kind of fantasies about what's going to happen in a street <laughs> fight. And something that he said is really stuck with me. And his comment was that the ground is undefeated in the history of fighting, meaning that if your opponent puts you into contact with the ground forcefully, the ground can do far more damage to you than anything another human being can do, which is an interesting thing to hear from a very high level practitioner of uh, martial art. 
And as I've reflected on what we're going to see at the Tour of Flanders and subsequently in the, in the rest of the season, one of the things that we know is that the ground is undefeated at Flanders. We're going to see someone or some subset of favorites go down in this race, and it's probably going to change the course of the season for some athletes. I've also just been reflecting back on this season, like with Sagan, for example, I don't know what went into his derailleur wheel jockey at San Remo, but do you recall that? Like that's what took him out of the race. He like had a stick in yeah. his uh, and, jockey wheel. Right. And like, how does that happen? Like on a, I don't, yeah, I don't yeah. know. It's, it's mind blowing. Right. But I mean that, and the other thing that we've seen this season, and I do think that this is somewhat unique to this season and we can dig into this at another time. But the number of drop chains to yeah. me seems unparalleled in in uh, the current epoch of cycling. I've read some conspiracy theories online. I don't know if you have, but uh, there are some interesting ideas about there about why we have seen so many chains get dropped this year. But those are the kinds of things that they're not necessarily chance. Like we know people are probably going to wreck and it's going to end the race on Sunday for some riders. That's why there's the positional battle and going back to Pojakar, this being his first crack at it. That is one of those things where like, if you have a team that knows when to shelter you at the right moments, or they actually have that physical ability to get you to the front before a critical turn or climb that really can make the difference. And I think that is where that kind of institutional knowledge of the race and, and having done it many times can really help a rider who's dropping into the new experience if they have that support in the background also on the mechanical side. So there are things that just go wrong because there's something wrong with the equipment. It wasn't tuned correctly, or it becomes these bikes are just being punished beneath these riders, putting out wattages that these bikes are not seeing under normal circumstances from recreational athletes. Right. So like, yeah. that's a bit of it. And then just whatever is happening with the road. Like, I think the bikes are subjected to forces that are at the limits of the ability of the equipment to handle, but that's nothing new. That's always been happening. But for some reason, chains are dropping everywhere. And, you know, there's also the flag factor. Um, you know, what's going to happen with flags dangling into the course? I know that this, <laughs> yeah. this could happen like at any race, but like we've seen this before too. And that's part of what's unique and beautiful about cycling is the ability of the fans to be so close that they can actually touch the athletes, which is, it's very interesting and compelling when you are a spectator on one of these events, equally as we saw at the tour last year, when that person jumped out to get the selfie and then got plowed and took out a bunch of riders, like some really bad things can happen as a consequence of that. Yeah. And the, the Flemish, the Flanderians are much more, much more professional than the French are oh, yeah. at their races. So, but it is interesting at this race, like when Sagan caught that sweater, I believe that was in 2016, 2017, like he, it was his fault. Like he was too close to the fence. And so it's like, you'll watch guys take risk getting too close to the fans who are often pretty well behaved for being super drunk and they don't really push out onto the course right. that much here, but guys will take huge risks. Like I think we saw Stebar. God, I forget what year that was at the end of Roubaix where he was like basically riding in the dirt next to the fans and then hit a fan and like got bumped across the road. So right. it, it's really funny to watch. Like they probably know it's a bad idea, but they're so screwed because they're so tired. They're just like, I don't care. I got to ride right in this gutter where I could catch a sweater. Chains are getting thinner. So it's, I, that's not a totally crazy conspiracy theory. Like the 12 speed chains you know, it's like nothing's changed since nine speed. That's the same distance you have for your right. cassette. So nine, if you go ride a nine speed chain, like you will not drop it. It's, it's a chunky piece of metal. 12 speed chains are tiny. Like I wouldn't, you know, I, I just think the smaller you get that chain, the more narrow it is, the more unstable it is. And you're going to have more mechanicals. Also, one thing that I guarantee you will happen, someone's DI2 will go into crash mode because the cobbles are so rough, the bike thinks it's crashing and it shuts off. And like this happens to Seth Van Mark every year and I have no idea why he keeps riding DI2. It's like, but it like, this doesn't get talked about. It's kind of like hush hush because Shimano doesn't want people to mention it. Right, yeah. And in the past we have seen some star riders select mechanical group sets specifically 
for the cobbled classics, but who knows at this point, maybe they're just being told, Hey, this is what you're going to ride. And that does happen. Like I've, yeah. I've had people tell me that where it's like the equipment supplier says, Oh, you, you think you're not going to ride this? Actually you are, that's what you're going to ride. Although again, we don't really have time to get into it here, but it has been interesting as equipment, it, particularly the pursuit of arrow and the disappearance of the super tuck. We're seeing the emergence of some new technical trends. I just looking at some of the tech coverage that's coming out, you are seeing more world tour riders using non-sponsor correct product, which is really surprising to me. Like people who are sponsored by Shimano using vision chain rings, for example, or, you know, other, other things related to that. We're definitely seeing it with tires as well. And that's gone on to a certain degree in the past where tires get relabeled, but it's, uh, it's happening in a way now that is very obvious and not, it's just like not being hidden. So that's kind of surprising. So like, that's one end of the spectrum at the other end of the spectrum. I think sometimes riders are told, Hey, this is where you're going to ride. Get out there, buddy. And, uh, you know, so chains are getting thinner and this is a fact. I don't know if this is a factor, but part of this, part of the speculation I've been reading is specifically with the new Shimano Dura Ace, you're seeing mixing of last generation and current generation parts, whether or not that is a factor, I have no idea, but there's a lot of speculation about that. And it does seem to be riders running that specific setup who are having a lot of chain drops. And is that supply chain driven that they just can't get all new parts? So they're like running technically non-compliant stuff. Yeah. I think specifically what has been happening is people are running last generation, uh, crank sets for Durace, but they're running the new, everything else from the new Durace, but I don't know. I mean, only someone inside a team would know that. And I'm sure somebody somewhere knows the answer, but all, all we know, like on, in the chain of causality, we're seeing a lot of drop chains and they don't tend to happen at good times. No, no. And it has, God, I wish I had like a metric for this. I feel like the last year and a half, it's been ridiculous. Like so many drop chains or like you wouldn't see this like on an, in an amateur race. It's a wild stuff. Well, Andrew, we, uh, I'll let you get off. You got another podcast to do, but we got, we got to get to bet together, maybe after Roubaix to kind of sum up this classic season and, and what's happened. But I'm sure you'll be up. You don't have to get up as early as me because you live on the East Coast. That's, that's nice <laughs> for these classics, but I'll be up early on Sunday, um, glued to the TV for Flanders. Yeah, I'll be glued to the TV as well. And we'll have waffles going here in Hope, Maine, and I'll have the kids cheering. So, all right. Are you guys, a, who, who's your pick for the race? And are you an MVP? MV? DP or Wout household? There's a lot of cheering for Wout. My son, Sam, who's five, is a big Wout fan, but he also knows Matthew. So, uh, but I think, I think Vanderpool wins. That's my pick. All right. I think I'm going with Matty Motorich. It's a long shot, but I just, I just got a feeling. I, I think he's looked fantastic. So have a great day. Thanks for joining us. It's been great to talk to you. Yeah. Thanks. Take care, Spencer. Bye. All right. Bye. All right, so that was great talking to Andrew. I'm going to go over and start our conversation with Oliver Nason. Oliver is a super talented rider. He has he's finished top 10 at the Tour of Flanders twice in 2019 and 2020. He was seventh. He was caught up in the infamous crash in 2017 when him and Peter Sagan were chasing Philippe Gelbert down over the Old Quermont, and Sagan caught a sweater on the side of the fence, and it crashed them both out. Um, and I really thought Oliver had a chance to win it that year. Um, so just a, a devastating, devastating moment, but that's like the beauty of sport. Um, he's not been feeling well this year. He's, he's kind of gotten sick, so he's not super confident about his chances, but um, I, I'm a big believer in Oliver. He's, he's kind of a survivor. I'll talk to his teammate, Larry Warabas, um, next week. They're both, um, both kind of late bloomers, didn't turn pro until they were in their mid-20s, but have both won their respective national championships. Oliver Nason was Belgian national champion in 2017, which is probably the most impressive national championships to win, especially when he says he was a mid-pack rider growing up and was not talented or particularly good at cycling. I don't really believe him, but um, I'm sure he was very good, but that's an incredible story, an incredible journey. And he reminded me, I had forgot, he was kind of bopping around uh, on 
not very good teams. He was on Top Sport, which is a good, it's kind of a good second, third division development team. He was on I Am Cycling, which was like a failed Swiss team that um, he makes sound even worse from the inside as it looked from the outside. And then H2R picked him up just because they needed the points. They thought, man, we can get a few World Tour points at some of these classics races. And then um, immediately he just w- was amazing. He just really blossomed once he got to that team. So it's, he, I really admire him um, both as a rider and as a person, um, just like a, a very humble, good, hardworking guy who, who's kind of just like slowly chipped away at the sport. He got second at Milano San Remo in 2019. So some really, really, really impressive results. First of all, I saw you crash yesterday. I hope you're feeling okay. I'm actually feeling pretty shit, to be honest. Uh-oh. I didn't break anything, but um, I'm open from, from top to bottom. And uh, like an hour ago, I started feeling like a bit feverish. It's not a... Oof. It looked... Not great. It looked like a rough crash. Yeah, it was high speed. Uh, I didn't really slide, you know. I just like stopped. crashed and yeah. stopped straight away. Yeah. Was, That's the worst. Yeah. Yeah, I thought I was I was becoming immune to crashes since it, it it's been like two years since I crashed, but uh, unfortunately, <clears throat> unlucky. That's an impressive run. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it stopped. <laughs> so you're feeling a little bit rough going into the Tour of Flanders tomorrow, or sorry, on on Sunday. But do you think you'll still be able to start that race? Uh, this morning, I started my day by going on the rolls, and I said to myself, "Yeah, this is actually." This feels okay. Just uh, getting on and getting off the bike, I felt like somebody, like an, a 90-year-old person. And I looked like it as well, so that wasn't all that great. But now, uh, the last hour, I'm starting to feel pretty bad, so I'm not really sure about it anymore. Well, we, we hope you the best. We hope you can start uh, on Sunday. Appreciate it. And do you mind talking for a second just about, like, so you're from Flanders and, like, what the race means to you as a Flanderian? Oh, it's bigger. It's 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 bigger than the race itself. It's it's perhaps the reason I started riding. Even so, that's kind of big. Uh, here where I live, I think there's six million people in Flanders, and like from what I hear, there's about a small million of us on the side of the road, which is actually off the charts. I, d- I don't know if there are any events in the world that have that many spectators on site. I don't think so. So it's really big. The build up the weeks before is huge. The newspapers, the TV channels, all, all they talk about, all we read about, hear about, and, and see is Flanders, Flanders, and once more Flanders. So it's, it's uh, the biggest thing ever for us. It's, it's my favorite race of the year. Like, I think it's a beautiful race. It's really challenging. Um, it's kind of hard to imagine. Like, cycling's a pretty niche sport in the U.S. Mm-hmm. It's, is, do you think it's the biggest sporting event of the year there? Or would, like, a, like a major Champions League, like, if, I guess if a Belgian team got to the Champions yeah. League final, that'd be a big deal. But Definitely. just like a routine year, is that the biggest sporting event of the year? Routine year, yes. But um, Olympics are also pretty big for us. And like you say, when the national team's playing and, and they're doing a final or something, which never happens, but if they would do that, I think that would, might even be bigger. But I'm, I'm pretty sure that would be bigger. But in a normal year without huge championships... Is definitely uh, is definitely the number one by far, I'd say. That's that's very cool. And do you mind talking about like how? So there's like all these cobbled races leading into Flanders. Um, there's like Roubaix afterwards. How is it different from like Gent Wevelgem or Dwarves, which you did yesterday, or E3? Or I mean, I assume they're quite a bit different, just in distance and intensity. And course, when you're watching on TV, like my in-laws have been over, and like <laughs> they don't really know anything about cycling, and they're like, what? why are all these races exactly the same? And I'm like, no, it's different. It's slightly <laughs> a different combination of climbs. But do you mind going into that for a second? Just like the nuances of Flanders versus the other couple classics? Well, I'd say your, your, your in-laws are partly right, but yours as well. They all look the same. We, we do the same roads actually all the time. I don't know how many times I went over Côte de Trier <laughs> the last weeks or, uh, or the other Quartermonts, like all the time. We're there uh, week in, week out. And uh, for me, as a local, <laughs> that goes beyond just these weeks. It's, it's year-round. So they look the same. But like you said, the distance, I mean, Flanders is 270k long, which is huge. And uh, Dwarz door Vlaanderen yesterday is 180k. It's, it's 90k difference. It's, it's, uh, it's like two-thirds of it. So uh, there lies a huge difference in, in the length. 
the importance. It's the, one of the five monuments. It's the only one we have in Belgium that makes it sort of mythical. The other ones are all very important, but nobody is going to choose any of the other races above Flanders. And then why is that? I don't know. I think the history plays a huge part. Um, yeah, the the, the build-up, like I said, in, in Belgium, it's it's so big. Like every other race, in the when the winner finishes, one of the first questions he gets asked is like, and now Flanders, what do you think about Flanders? Today is good, but what do you think about Flanders? It's it's not on the same planet as, as the other ones. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm guilty of that too, or it's like every it's race that bad. happens before Flanders. And, it's definitely not yeah. bad. It, it's it like helps Flanders be the biggest one. Without that, this question would be harder to answer. <laughs> <laughs> And the uh, the distance is interesting to me. I think uh, I've even like argued with writers about this, where it's like, how much does the difference distance really make a difference? Like a hundred k extra. Like I'm of the mind that I feel like you can see, like you can physically see, like at the end of Milano San Remo, it's perceived as an easy race, yeah. but it people's bodies are reacting differently mm-hmm. at the end of that race than if it was a fifty k long race. Like, do you do you feel that when you're in it? Definitely. I think the limiting factor in a race is that long is like our our um, gasoline tank, so to speak. And we cannot refuel all the time. You, you can refuel all the time, but there's a limit in what your body can take up. And if it's empty, it's empty. There's this invisible border of 200K. You will also see this in Flanders. Second time we go over uh, Eau de Quaremont, that's about the 200K line. You will see that half the bunch all of a sudden like explodes. On the bottom, we will be with 150 riders. On the top, there will be 30 maximum. And then how, why is that? We already did like 20 climbs. Nothing happens. The pace didn't really yeah. pick up. It's just like everybody's running out of gas. And uh, that's definitely the limiting factor for these super endurance races. And for San Remo, it goes the same. And when you were growing up, I assume you grew up in Flanders and like did all the, the youth development there. Like, how did you, did you know from a young age, like I'm a classics rider, like the cobble classics are where my specialty is? No, definitely not. When I was younger, I mean, the, the, the races we do as, as kids or as uh, adolescents, they're very local always. It just laps in, in small villages. It's, it's like the crits in the US, I think. So yeah, yeah. that's what we do. And, and I wasn't very good at, at, at any race in particular, <laughs> any style of racing when I was younger. I never really won races. So I didn't have the luxury of, of seeing myself as a, this sort of ride or that sort of ride. I was just like there to fill the pack and try to progress <laughs> that is wild it's wild to hear you're a very very good rider i yeah and that's what i guess that's what's interesting about your career is it, it's really hard for americans and myself to wrap our heads around like if you were american you would be like the gem of the american cycling <laughs> scene scene and like you're saying you're packed fill and races growing up i mean do you think that's that made you a better rider than if you were living in, I don't know, Colorado and just dominating every race growing up? Maybe, maybe, I don't know. It was just so hard here. I was also, I'm, I'm just, I just blossomed later. Or how do you say? I was like small for a long time. I, when I was 19 years old, I started growing. So this, all, all of that didn't help me in the, in my younger years. But then afterwards I started to compete. And when your career is going like this or when your, your physical level is going up, you start to appreciate it more. You, you dedicate yourself more and more, and uh, it's very rewarding when you get the results back. So I think that's that's the reason I got I got better. That's yeah, that's interesting. I think there's like a misunderstanding in the U.S. that you want to be as small as possible to be a racer, but like oh, that's true. Belgium, that's true also. Like, but like here in Belgium, it's different. Uh, our races size and size and weight are always important, but not as important as like on the climbs. On the climbs, it's it's a whole a whole other story, a whole different sport. And uh, yeah, I mean the age. The age of the riders is also something that's different to the US. You guys have like college football and, and all of that. We don't really have that. We, yeah. when we were like, I, I got pro when I was 24 years old. I'm not sure if that's possible in, in, in many other sports. I think that's pretty late. So yeah, I was a bit lucky. That's, uh, I was talking to your teammate, Larry Warbus, earlier this week, and he was saying he didn't turn pro until he's 23 and that he doesn't know if he'd be able to replicate that if he was coming up now. That no. people would be like, who's this old guy? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We, Larry is my age and uh, we're very good friends and it's, it's 100, he's 100% right. Today, if, if you're 23 years old and a, and a late bloomer, there's no place for you anymore in the bench. So, so him and I, I think we were like the, the last of 
the last uh, the last lucky ones to to turn pro at an older age. That's interesting. I mean, I'm like I'm fascinated by like trends and how you can like cut back against mm-hmm. trends to your own competitive advantage. Like if like if you're telling me you and Larry, who are really good riders, would not be signable in today's market, that tells me there's versions of you guys that are now 23, 24. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Without teams, yeah, that someone could go scoop up. I mean, you see, Quick Step has not been good this year in the Cabo Classics. Like they've had, they've really not done a good job of like replenishing their their Cabo mm-hmm. Classics team. Like it's just a lot of the same guys, and you're like, there must be. I mean, we saw Germain win on Sunday, yeah. and you're like, that guy was almost unemployed twelve months ago. Yeah, but he he, he spoke to like literally every team, so he could have he could have gone almost everywhere. He could have gone to our team. Quick Step talked to him. So he might not be the best example, but I, I get what you mean. And Quickstep, oh, about them, I, they, they were really, really unlucky. I was in Paris-Nice with, a, with their classics team. And uh, I remember the day, two days before I stopped, Lampard got the flu, he stopped. Stevie got the flu, had to stop. Asgreen two weeks before got COVID. Again, like, so if, if your key riders get sick and you come to Flanders, they're they're never going to be better than like 90 95% but uh for someone like let's say Eve or myself if we are at 90 95% i think we are we are nowhere so that's uh that's what makes these races so demanding that's what makes them beautiful but it's also what, yeah. what makes cycling a, an, an, an ungrateful mistress do you th- uh, yeah i did like see i've seen the Quinn Simmons make comments about that this week it's like essentially like an like if you get on the escalator at the wrong time, like you're just never going to catch up. To no, never, in never. In this period, no. In the rest of the year, there's always some, there's always possibilities and, and openings. But uh, in in springtime, uh, yeah, you have, to, you have to always be optimistic as an athlete. Otherwise, you know, you're never going to have, have a good time. But when you get behind, when you're on the wrong train and your train is moving a little bit slower, due to any any reason at all. You're never gonna catch the good train anymore until like April or the end of April. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's very hard, eh? because there's no rider here in this bunch that uh, that hasn't like destroyed himself for an entire winter to to have a good level. And then if you're not there, uh, it's very hard. I think for for the quick step riders, it feels it feels a bit the same way. They didn't really do anything different than the other years. It's just yeah, there's a bunch of viruses going around, and you get them. Tough luck. Do you guys, are you guys pretty paranoid about, because there is this like rash of virus that like non-COVID viruses, it appears going around. Like, are you guys like limiting your contact with other teams? Or Absolutely. Or just kind of hoping for the best? Yeah, yeah, we're, yeah. We're, paranoid is, a, is the perfect term. I'm, I'm paranoid to get, to get sick. It, it goes far. Eh? When, when my parents come to, to our house or my, my wife's parents, we only see them outside. That's already something. It's, and it's been this way since, since two years. Um, yeah, when, when we're anywhere, even we, even though we don't have to wear masks anymore, we're always going to wear our masks. And uh, yeah, what else? What else do we do? Separate rooms as much as possible. Uh, yeah, I didn't see my friends since since forever. And if if then you still get sick, <sighs> then it feels extra yeah. extra sour, you know. But ever, yeah, yeah. all riders are, are like that. We're all the same. That's like that's very intense. That's a lot of personal sacrifice. Yeah, because for... you have to do so. You have to do so much to get to a half decent level. I mean, cycling is, is sort of sort of an ungrateful sport, actually. When you're a professional football player and you stop your career, I think if in ten years you don't touch a ball anymore, uh, they give you they give you one. You can still you still have your your talent, your skills, your technique. You can still do more than the average Joe. When we stop our season and we, we don't ride for five, six weeks, we are nowhere. <laughs> and you have to build all of that up through, uh, through the winter. And uh, winters in Europe can be, can be hard and demanding. So, yeah, you kind of get paranoid. If you had like one year where you were sick in, in spring classics, you, you say to yourself, okay, this, I never wanna, this, this may never happen to me again. And uh, yeah, you do, you do crazy stuff to, to avoid it. And then still, you risk getting sick, which happens to almost everybody this year that is um i i've like pushed back on this before a lot of pros say this like yeah if we don't ride for six weeks we're terrible it's like you might feel terrible no yeah we are terrible the it's your your heart rate is is like the the best parameter during the season we go riding we ride 35 k's an hour 
and uh, your heart rate is like 100, 105. If in November you start again, you, I'm like on the flat, I'm riding 27. My heart rate is like 140, you know? <laughs> the, the difference is so big, it's, it's unbelievable. I've been curious about like, um, you know, it's like you have a home in Flanders. Like, do you like for like, I don't know, let's say you take a month off training and it's time to train. Like, are you just doing that from your house or are you like going south for better weather? Uh, Well, the beginning, that's then always November. I try to enjoy my friends and family. So training is always starting here. November can can be mild in Belgium. So I've never done a training camp in November, but then December and January. Uh, that's, that's every year the same. There's three out of four weeks that we are in Spain. And the same, go, same goes for, for, I think, all Belgians or even Europeans. And I'm not even talking about Norwegians and, and Danish riders. For them, it's a, it's a whole other story. Like, wow, Van Art's like a big celebrity. And like amongst, in my neighborhood, there's like a bunch of people that are fans of his. And normal. It's, they're always like asking questions about him. And you're like, I, I don't like, I guess he's just training in Belgium. And like, sometimes he goes south to the winter. It's like a funny, cause you guys just must have like permanent lives in, in Flanders and yeah. you can't just pick up and move. Cause a lot of Americans just like live in Spain yep. and that's where they are almost all the time. Yep. Well, so, they, they also moved it, there and, and their permanent life then actually is in Spain for us, Belgians being a Belgian and a pro rider, I think is a luxury situation. Because we often get to go home. Like now between Dwarf Vlaanderen and, and, and Flanders, I'm in my own house. This is a luxury that not many other riders have. And uh, But still, even us, I think I calculated once. On average, we are like 200 days per year in a hotel room, which is quite a lot, you know, considering the year is only uh, 360, 356 days. 365 yeah, yeah. Days. That's a lot. When you're training, so you said you've been racing over the same roads like over and over and over again for the last few weeks. Do you train out on those roads or are you just like looking for the smoothest surfaces in your training and you're just racing on the cobblestones? Well, I live on these roads, so I always have to pass some, but it's not like, it's not like I go look for the cobbled, the cobbled roads. I do some from time to time, but uh, since, since I'm 16 years old and I'm 32 now, I've done them year in, year out. I, I know them by heart. Like if there's a cobbled section and there's like a cobble missing somewhere, I know where where that gap is uh you know i know them so well that i don't need to to train on them day in day out but i pause them all the time and that must be a huge advantage when you're in the race and yeah you have that knowledge i think so yeah yeah but still if you see if if you see like a rider like girmay last weekend this guy never rode on the cobbles before he's (laughs) fourth in e3 and he wins again that's just unreal i'm super happy to see it but it's Whew. crazy i don't know if it's true i read that it was like he's just like never seen the roads before like no no he never he saw d- them. didn't recon the roads he never saw them that before in, in his life it's definitely true he talked with lefevre from quickstep and uh yeah his his, his agents and is an agent he uh, they, they thought to be on a star team as a 20 year old rider which is actually very very young to to, to turn pro yeah is that the right choice in his career? He, he had to pick a team where he could have his own chance and everything. And he did that with uh, Intermarché Wanti. Obviously, he made, a, he made a great choice. He will never have problems uh, finding a team. That's, that's 100% sure. On the contrary, I think everybody wants, wants him. And even when he was uh, 18 years old, when he, when he beat at Remco, straight away he could, he could go to Delco Marseille, which is a smaller team, but it's a pro team nonetheless. And uh, to be pro at, at 18, 19 years old, that's, that's only the happy very 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 few that that can do that so uh he is destined to do a very very nice career without ever having to to think about will i have a spot on the contrary now it's not necessarily what i would have recommended like go to intermarche i assume just because he had his own he could be like the main star there Mm -hmm. kind of a risky move you could imagine that not going as perfectly as it has gone like the it's, better option would probably be like go go to a big team yeah. and learn the ropes from yeah yeah it's a choice you have to make but like Wanti they're they're a aspiring world tour team uh, very very motivated good sprint bike I mean it's it's, it's not a bad choice uh, for a young rider to to have some opportunities for yourself I think it, actually it's a great choice that he made you can always go to to the the superstar teams with a rider like him if you make him pull. If you make a sprinter pull too much or, or, or train too much in this 
to do this zone three kind of efforts. I think you maybe take away of, of their explosivity and, and sprint qualities. And uh, he is a leader wherever he starts. So good for him, I think. That's that's a very interesting thing you break up bring up. I've had my own personal theory about this. Like if you, I don't know, like Mikhail Kiyavkoski is world champion, yeah, yeah. really explosive rider, goes to Ineos, pulls in the front for the tour every year. Best example. Does not have that ex- explosiveness anymore. Best example. Yeah, he's also... He's also still young. I think he was world champion in in, in 2015 at, at 25 years of age. That's early to be world champion. And then he won San Remo. He yeah. won a bunch of nice races. And then he made the choice to to be a to be a world class helper and uh, and help his team win many Tour de France's, which is is great. You know, Tour de France is by far the biggest event. If you can win it or contribute to uh, multiple victories, it's an unbelievable thing to do. But it's actually it's also a very selfless I, I wouldn't be able to I, I would never have made that choice in, in his place but everybody has to make their own choices obviously I've thought about that a lot like what would I do in that it's hard because eh? obviously it's a difficult question yeah because yeah, you don't want to like I'm betting on myself and then you never win yeah, anything again. Yeah, well, <laughs> wrong bet boy <laughs> I'm curious about your team so you're Flemish but you're on a French team yeah. is that how, how did that come about and like what what's the inner team dynamics like there how it came about is uh, I was a pro in Topsport Vlaanderen and that's like in a, that was my first team as a formation team. And uh, if you can go to a World Tour team, they let you go. So that was 2015, my first year. I went to IM Cycling, which was a Swiss team back in the day in 2016. And at one of the first meetings, they were like, guys, as you know, if you don't find a co-sponsor, I actually was with Larry there. If you don't find a co-sponsor, the team will, will fold in the end of the year. And I was like, this was the first team meeting? Yeah, yeah, I was like, oh, what's this? Every, everybody <laughs> knew it, but it was, it was news for me. So that team folded. And the first team to call me to, uh, to go there was uh, AG2R, actually. And I was, only, I was only second year pro. So it's not like I had many choices. They didn't have a classic score. It's a bit like Girmay's choice for Wanty, actually. There was, there was an opening there for, uh, for younger guys trying to do some results in, in the classic races, which I quickly felt were, were the ones that suited me best. And uh, oh, since then, it, it has been a good choice. I've, I've done some nice results that I never would have been, never would have thought to be to be able to to do them when I was younger. So, yeah, so far so good. It's been a good choice, definitely. Yeah, it's worked out really well. And I'm curious about that phrase. Like they didn't have a classics core, and then you come in. I, I've always wondered, like, so do you go in and they're like, hey, so we're gonna do the classics now? <laughs> no, it was like. It was the introduction of, of the World Tour points. They became a bit more important back then. And for AG2R, the, the brand, it always has been important to have a high team classification. And since AG2R the team was always a GC team, but never like winning Grand Tours or anything, they, they always would lose a ton of points in, a, in the one-day races. And they wanted like, to like fill that gap with somebody who, who didn't cost much and who would do like regularly between 10 and 20 to get some points and uh i was like 26 years old oh that's that's a, a place i see myself it went a bit better in the beginning and then yeah you know they, they started to take they started to realize oh there's a lot of po- points to be uh to be taken here in these one day races and they started to take on more and more one day ri- riders and then we discovered that one day riders are often good helpers in, in grand tours and that's why that's how the the dynamics changed in our team and yeah like i have helped a lot in in uh, stage races on, on windy days and stuff so it's been a, a good marriage so far yeah i mean it's worked out i mean you had two years where you top 10 flanders and i thought i thought i can't remember which one it was i thought one of them oh no i'm thinking of the this one year where he yeah the one yeah crashed, yeah that one yep. oh that was that was in hindsight maybe the, the worst thing ever to happen to me in, a, in cycling let's say <laughs> it's the, I, 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 st- I still remember that happening like it was yesterday. I could not believe that. Me neither. Me neither. It was, it was surreal. But I also remember after the finish line, ah, don't worry. You have, you can still win Flanders five times or, or even more in the upcoming years. Eh? It was an expensive crash in, uh, in, in hindsight. Just don't get sick this year and you'll win it. You'll be the only rider on the start line. I've been sick. The That's the going. problem. I've, I've had it. It's too late for me this year. And I want to ask you about Vanderpoel, like Matthew Vanderpoel. You just talked about how important it was to do everything right if you want to win Flanders. The guy is like off the map, sh- shows up. Now he's winning. Like, 
does, do the rules just no longer apply to him? I uh, can't quite wrap my head around this. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, you have to be, you have to know what you can and what you cannot do. And when we're talking about the rules, the rules for me are definitely not the same as the rules for him. We're often thinking, ah, the guys attacked now way earlier. They attacked at uh, 100k to go last race. Only what you should do is you should attack at 110k to go. What happens then is I would probably get dropped at 80k to go. So, you know, <laughs> guys like that, oh, they, they, they change the, the rule book, definitely. And do you think we're, we are seeing attacks go really, really far out? And do you think it's just they're better? Or is there something broken kind of in chase groups where they can't quite nail back riders like they were doing five years ago? Definitely better. They're definitely better. Like the top is now narrow again. There were a few years where we had like a plateau with, a, with guys that could do good results, but these days are, are behind us. Now we have like two, three riders per race that, that can dream of winning the race or can legitimately say, I'm going to win the race. And uh, they're just better. That's the difference. Interesting. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah. And it's like, I often like, if Fabian Cancellara was in Flanders this year, like he probably wouldn't be riding away from people like he was 12 years ago. Like I, I wonder if the level's risen that much. I've often, I've, I've often said, I think these guys is the best generation of, of one day riders ever. But then that's also dangerous because you, you can never compare generations because the older generations, they don't, they don't have the, the chance to, to like defend themselves or prove themselves. I mean, Wout van Aert, Mathieu van der Poel, they're, they're amazing. And, and I'm sure they're among the best ever. But if you look at somebody like Bonin or Sagan, I mean, Sagan, three world titles, like Bonin, four times Roubaix, what was it? Four or three times Flanders, five, five, five times E3. I think these, these statistics, whew, to catch him, they still have a long way to go. So they're amazing now, but a career is also long and... You can only judge them afterwards and then the numbers matter. Yeah, yeah. I, I have to wonder about this too, where I'm like, God, there's no one better than Vanderpool. Nope. And then it's like, yeah, Boone won E3 five yeah, yeah. times. That yeah, is exactly. really hard to imagine. Yeah. That's sick. Like, and Rube four times. Is like- yeah, that's crazy. And you think, you know, it's like, wow, I'd say Wout and Vanderpool are, are pretty good. Yeah, amazing. And, but they're like in their 27, where you're like, so to match that, they'd have to be winning Rubes into their 30s, which. Yeah. Which is possible, and but they cannot. They can. Which is possible, like yeah. E three, they can. It has to always be either one or the other to to match those stats. The next years can be, but it's a very big challenge. There's like a lot of talk about like it's a young man's game now, et cetera, et cetera. Like Roubaix is the average age at Roubaix is quite old for the winner. Do you think that is it just like happenstance that the good riders happen to be young, or is it really like are people realizing? Maybe in the past, if you were really talented in your 20, no director would let you race for yourself. And now that's changed. Or do you think to say, I don't know, these, it's a, the guys that are, that are coming, that are coming over to the pro ranks now, the, like the Vanderpools, the Mathieu's, I don't know how many world titles Mathieu had before turning pro every year, at least one or two on the road, uh, in the field, mountain biking. So I think it's, it's more them than uh like how cycling is today it's it's just individual class i'd say yeah yeah and you see it like i don't know if you watched catalonia but yeah yeah, i watched (laughs) like carapaz and the gita broke away and then juan ayuso who has zero professional wins was like now i'm not gonna work for the race i couldn't believe it and then he was acting like oh my radio i think it doesn't work (laughs) what is going on behind me are they not in my wheel that was that was a that was some good acting, huh? <laughs> yeah, I thought that that was quite amusing. It was was fantastic funny. little play there. Enjoyed, so, I enjoyed I mean, that. As I well. <laughs> can, I, it makes me feel old because I'm like, God, I cannot imagine this happening five years ago. Like, what is me going neither? On like with these kids these days, these godfathers of cycling. I imagine if you would have done that to to one of the to like Lance Armstrong, I think. I I don't know. I think the mafia would come get you or something. <laughs> it would end. <laughs> yeah. It would end very badly. That's for sure. What happens if Pogacar was in that position? Is is it the same type of disconnect? It's like, no, I'm not working for Tadej Pogacar, so I, I'm very curious to see how that plays out. That'd be sick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, could that'd be, be crazy. Uh, the last thing I, I will ask you about is like, so the, this, this season ends, or actually, this is a really weird classic season. I think there's like a French election, and that's why Roubaix yeah. is later than it normally exactly. is. 
how like that's got to be has this ever happened before it seems like it'd be very hard to be fit for get wobblegum and roubaix do you think we'll see different riders doing well at those races huh. it's usually the, the the usual suspects are always on the front but uh, the winners might be different but in this day and age everything is possible i mean to do to do like to say who, who's gonna do what today i, I have no idea honestly I, I couldn't tell you my friends often ask me hey who do i have to play for uh, for this weekend and <laughs> damn if i know <laughs> <laughs> It does seem like it used to be like there'd be four or five riders. More predictable. Like, eh? They can win. On, yeah. yeah. Now it's like, could Pogacar win Roubaix? I don't know. Like, maybe. I've, <laughs> I'm not going to say no. No, me neither. You can, that's the thing. You can never say no anymore. Yeah. Which I guess is good. For, it's good for us watching it. Definitely. When you're in it, it must be incredibly difficult. Thanks. <laughs> so, so the classic season ends and then... What's your, like? What's what's that rhythm like? I, do you have like a mini little off season after Roubaix, and then you kind of start building up for the summer? Yeah, exactly. That's what it is. One week off, and then you can start over, which is good. That's nice. And then you're thinking like, go to the Tour de France and try to win a stage. Is that kind of the main goal of the summer? Yes, but also these stages, these breakaway stages, they don't really exist anymore. Also, the tour has changed a lot. If you look at the last three years, the stage winners are always always the same guys. There there are hardly any non-top climber breakaways anymore so the tour is, is not getting easier either yeah i've noticed that too where it seems like i just yeah i can like picture almost the specific stages in my head where it's like lewis land sanchez and seven other guys are going to get away yep. and the peloton is not going to chase and that you're right that does not seem to no, be no. happening anymore it's finished what do you think the reason for do you think like what changed there i don't know it's since the since the covid quarantine that uh, we all we all came back to racing, and it's like every day is the last day or something. Uh, feels a bit like yeah, feels yeah. a bit like that. Yeah, it's just like, well, what if we raced hard every day? Yeah, what if we just like, went full all the time? I guess you, I guess you could. Yeah, you can try, and and they're tr- they're trying. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's been very strange to watch. It does feel like pre-COVID, post-COVID. Yeah, it's yeah. almost two different sports. Yeah, for me, it feels that way. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time. And Oliver's in a GCN Plus documentary that comes out. I think it came out on Tuesday. Yeah. So this is coming out on Friday. You can watch it on there. It's called How to Win the Tour of Flanders. I have no idea. <laughs> Spoilers. But if you live in the U.S., it is GC, just not for the documentaries, for the racing too. It's an, it's an amazing app to get. I would highly recommend it. It's We were like in the dark ages over here before GCN. Yeah, so they're, they're the best. It's been like a big game changer. Definitely. Well, good luck on, on Sunday. We'll be, we'll be looking out for you. Thank you very much. It was nice talking to you. Great, great to talk to you as well. Perfect. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Oliver Nason. He was an incredibly interesting guy, and I thought just pretty candid and a lot of um, fascinating insight into the workings of the professional peloton. Well, enjoy the Tour of Flanders on Sunday. I will try to get a quick recap episode out early next week before I take off for a mini vacation in between Flanders and Roubaix. All right. Have a great weekend. Bye.